The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Don Davis. I met Dr. Davis at a soil conference, heard him speak on a panel, and then had the pleasure of meeting him again at another conference just last week in Wisconsin, and I was fascinated by his research. He was formerly a research associate at the Biochemical Institute at the University of Texas in Austin. Interestingly, he holds a Ph.D. in physical chemistry. He received that in 1965, so he has a wonderful historical perspective on our food system and physical and chemical properties of that. In 1970 to the present, his interests changed, and he became interested in nutrition education and research, the nutritional qualities of whole and non-whole foods, and historical changes in the nutrient content of foods. One of the papers that I think Dr. Davis is most known for is actually looking at the declining fruit and vegetable nutrient composition and what is the evidence. So without further ado, welcome, Dr. Davis. Thank you. Glad to be with you. You I had to ask you a question. How did you go from getting a Ph.D. in physical chemistry and having a strong focus in organic chemistry, gas kinetics, chemical education? How did you make the switch to a professional interest in nutrition? Well, it's kind of unusual, I expect. I was very interested in chemistry and physics in high school and beyond because I wanted to understand how the world works. But after a while, as I was a professional physical chemist, I began to broaden my interest to more human-related things. And a chance occurrence, a student brought me a book about nutrition, and she said, I think you might be interested in this book. And it turned out I was. This uh, ultimately led my finding other books on nutrition, including some by Professor Roger Williams at the University of Texas, who was um, one of the granddaddies of nutritional science. He discovered panathenic acid and named folic acid, and the institute that he founded at the University of Texas, they discovered more vitamins than any other lab in the world. So I found his books, for example, Nutrition Against Disease, and these really inspired me, and here was a way that I could use my chemistry background to apply to more human-oriented things. And I ended up moving to Austin from California to work with him in 1974. And I thought it would just be a few years, but it turned out to be the rest of my career there. What was the book that the student brought you? It was Adele Davis's Let's Eat Right to Keep Fit, which was first published, I think, in the 1950s, 1956, something like that. Yes. She was a dietitian. (laughs) Have you heard of her? I have, and her book actually received a lot of criticism, but it did indeed get people interested in eating right. Well, that's exactly what it did for me. Uh, I was aware as I was reading it that she wasn't uh, scientifically sophisticated, but I still, I was interested in what's right in her book and not just looking for what's wrong. And which others have done, as you've suggested, 
And when I found the books of Roger J. Williams, here was a, a scientist, a leading nutritional scientist, who in many ways was saying the same thing that Adele Davis was, and that is that nutrition is much more important than we have been taught, much more important uh, than physicians are aware. And this uh, was just, it was a wonderful thing for me to discover his books. Well, you know what I find so interesting is that if you look at Hippocrates, you know, one of, you know, the first of the fathers of medicine, and his famous quote, that food is indeed our first medicine, and we look at the way physicians are trained today, very much lacking in nutrition education. I mean, there's maybe one class that they take, perhaps, right. usually nutritional biochemistry, but I'm, I'm always intrigued when I see doctors who have suddenly found nutrition. You know, it's like, wait a second, this is the basis of wellness. This shouldn't be yeah. such a great surprise. Well, the right. fact that you've been looking at this topic since then, 1970, that gives us a broad perspective in terms of you've probably seen a lot of changes in our food and agriculture system. How have they influenced the food quality that we have today? How have those changes influenced uh, food quality? Are you quality? talking about the, the changes in people's attitudes about nutrition or, or the changes in agriculture? Uh, practices. Yes, the changes specifically to agriculture practices. Yeah. Well, my first immediate introduction to this was two colleagues at a, a alternative medical clinic in Wichita, Kansas, where I worked beginning in 1989 for 20 years. They had seen an earlier paper published in England about English food composition data that reported apparent declines in uh, 20 fruits and vegetables over about a 50-year period. And they, these two colleagues of mine decided that they wanted to do a similar study with U.S. data. And uh, they brought me in to help them analyze the data. And that, that ended up with a paper that we, the three of us published in 2004 where we looked at 43 different foods, looking at food composition data that had been published by the U.S. Department of Agriculture in 1950. We compared it to the same foods, the nutrient contents in 1999, and analyzed them statistically and concluded that there was good evidence for declines in about half of the 14 nutrients that we looked at. Uh, that was my first introduction to this whole field. And then along the way, as a result of that paper, I discovered that there was other kinds of evidence for declines. Since the 1940s, agricultural scientists have known about what they call the dilution effect. They, they became aware in the 40s and 50s and on that uh, when they used fertilizer or irrigation to increase the yield of crops, there was a tendency for that to cause a decline in the nutrient contents of the foods. And they call this a dilution effect because what's happening is that you, you stimulate the plant to grow bigger and faster with fertilizers or irrigation. And the plant tries to keep up with this increased yield by absorbing more minerals from the soil, but it turns out they're not able to absorb more minerals as fast as the yield goes up. So 
you get a diluting effect, uh, more plant, not enough more minerals. Then the third kind of evidence that, that I discovered along the way was the most definitive kind of study. That I call them side-by-side studies. They've been done now for wheat and uh, corn and broccoli, also potato. They get a historical collection of, for example, wheat varieties, some of them going back to the 1800s. They still have uh, seed samples from going back that far. And they take, in the case of the wheat study, I think there was 14 different varieties ranging over a period of something like 80 years when these were commercially grown. They took all these seeds and planted them side by side in the same field, fertilized them the same, and watered them the same. So everything was the same for these 14 different varieties, except for differences in their genetics, which were the current standard going back to the 1800s. And what they found was that the newer the the variety of wheat, the higher the yield was. This is the main motivation that breeders have. That's why that's that's the main reason that the varieties change is breeders uh, develop varieties that have a higher yield. The more recent varieties, the higher yield varieties, tended to have lower concentrations of minerals. Hmm. These side by side studies are are very powerful because they eliminate the uncertainties that we have looking at historical data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. You don't know where the plants were grown. You don't know the fertilization that was used and so on. That's why we, in those historical studies, we have to average over a large number of foods to get the best possible answer. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, this whole idea of yield, because you'll hear agricultural scientists say, well, we've got to feed the world, we've got to increase yield. But at the same time, we have to feed people well. And I've heard farmers say that they wish they could be paid for quality rather than quantity. Yes. Yeah, our our world would be very different if that were easily possible. If if they were paid for nutritional quality, the, the whole picture would change. But they get paid for yield. So that's what the breeders and the agricultural colleges and so forth focus on. Mm -hmm. Well, we should talk a little bit about, in that vein, the Green Revolution of the 60s and 70s, which increased yields by two- to threefold, you mentioned in this article, and sometimes more in major developing countries. But less well-known were those changes in nutritional quality that occurred with that. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your perspective on the Green Revolution. Well, everyone knows about these big increases in yield, and Norman Burlog, who led the effort to develop these new varieties, he received the Nobel Peace Prize for saving a lot of starving people in India because India was having to import grain, uh, but within a few years, five or so, they became self-sufficient in wheat and, and even were able to export wheat. Everyone knows this part of the story, but what is not very well known at all still is the fact that there's been a considerable trade-off. The higher yields have been accompanied by uh, decreasing mineral concentrations, and we're 
beginning to be a little bit more sophisticated about starvation. We used to think that when people were starving, they were just short on calories, and all they needed was more calories. Or maybe they just needed more calories and more protein, but we're now realizing that it's more than that. Minerals and vitamins are important, too, and people are beginning to talk about hidden hunger, even though people may be getting enough calories, may be getting enough protein, they may not be getting enough minerals and vitamins to keep them really healthy. And so this is this is what's called hidden hunger. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's becoming increasingly recognized uh, in the poor areas of the world. And unfortunately, these nutrient-depleted wheat varieties are contributing to that. Mm-hmm. And this is unfortunately not very well known. I agree. You know, I received my dietetic education degree in 1978 and then went on and got my master's years after that. But I don't recall ever learning about agricultural practices and how they affected food quality, let alone this idea of the dilution effect. So really, I I only learned about that relatively recently. And I think it's extremely interesting for us to pay more attention to that. And I think that the vitamins and supplement industry has really jumped on this hidden hunger. And I think using a Band-Aid approach has maybe tried to sell people supplements when really I think we should work farther upstream and say, no, let's fix the food system in the first place. We shouldn't have to take pills to supplement a deficient diet. Would you agree with that? Right. Yes, certainly, because we're not all that smart about nutrition, and I like to say that supplements are only supplements, not substitutes, because there are other things in foods besides just the known essential vitamins and minerals. Phytochemicals have been discovered fairly recently, five or ten or so years. They're not essential, but they're certainly beneficial, and uh, it's there's thousands of them, and it's it's uh, not a feasible thing to try to imitate nature with a supplement regarding these phytochemicals. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is a quick fix. There's there's another issue here too, I think, and that is population. There's no doubt that we have a population problem. And when I was younger, 20 years ago, there was more talk about the need to control population. I don't hear much about that so much anymore, and we just hear from the companies about the need to increase yields more. Mm-hmm. But uh, the people who are saying this, they never show any awareness that there's this downside. We're working against fixing hidden hunger problems by continuing to increase yields and dilute the nutrient contents. And in order to make intelligent choices about really whether it's really a good idea to keep increasing yields, we need to become aware of this downside. And unfortunately, I don't see much awareness at all yet. Yeah, I think this is a really excellent point, which is why I wanted you to be my guest today, Dr. Davis. Just a friendly reminder to our listeners that we're speaking with Dr. Don Davis. He is a retired research associate from the Biochemical Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. He holds a Ph.D. in physical chemistry and until 1970 worked in the chemistry and physics fields. And then in 1970 to the present, he has switched his professional interest over to how he can apply that knowledge and that wisdom to nutritional science. 
You know, the other thing, Dr. Davis, that we we don't hear about while there's all this push to increase yield is the amount of food that's wasted. And I saw a study that showed about 40% of our food is is actually wasted. So not only are we suffering from this unequal distribution of food and the argument that perhaps we are indeed producing enough food right now for the world, but yes, Mm -hmm. we've got this population explosion that needs to be discussed, reducing waste, which needs to be discussed, and also these hidden unintended consequences of pushing yield and driving down nutrient density. Now, I want to ask you a question, though, about, you know, when we're choosing varieties for our gardens then to feed our families, would you say that heirloom varieties have a better nutritional content, all else being equal, compared to hybrids? I think that's quite possible, although there's no proof of that. But there's every indication that that will tend to be true because of these associations that I've mentioned before, where the the older varieties have uh, higher concentrations of nutrients. And also, it's pretty clear that, for example, in broccoli, the, the modern varieties of broccoli have much larger heads than the, the older varieties. And, and this uh, points to what is probably generally true, and that is uh, smaller fruits and vegetables, smaller varieties, and s- smaller specimens are, are likely to have higher nutrient concentrations. Uh, smaller heads of broccoli, uh, smaller tomatoes, smaller peaches, and so forth. Many people assume that bigger is better. Mm-hmm. But the, small, the smaller varieties are going to likely have higher nutrient concentrations. This is pretty well documented in the case of grapes for wine. The best wines are made from uh, small varieties of grapes that are not pampered and fertilized and irrigated. There's uh, what they call the struggling vine theory of uh, producing wine, that the best wines come from vines that are struggling. The grapes are small, and the result is that the nutrients and the phytochemicals and the colors are more concentrated, and this is where the most flavorful wines come from. This is pretty well accepted. That is so interesting. I I don't know if you've also experienced this. Like with strawberries, for example, I've found that some of the smaller fruits are some of the sweetest and tastiest compared to their larger, higher-yielding varieties. Yes, Uh, tomatoes, too. Mm Mm-hmm been my experience. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you a little bit then along these same lines of the health properties and nutritional qualities of food. One of the studies that came out, uh, you wrote a comment about, it's received a lot of news attention in the press, and that had to do with the Stanford study, right? The Stanford study got me a little annoyed because the headlines that came out the press release headlines that came out about the Stanford study, which compared organic to conventionally grown foods, the headline would have us think that organic foods are no better, save your money. And yet, if you went in and read the research and looked at the research that wasn't included in the organic study review at Stanford, you came to a much different conclusion. I know that you wrote a letter to the editor. Uh, This was produced in the Annals of Internal Medicine, 
the study was published, let's see, in February, I believe, of 2013. It generated lots of comments. I wonder if you would like to comment a little bit about, again, this agricultural method of really developing a healthy soil, soil first, and how that influences nutritional quality of food. Well, my letter uh, focused on just one specific aspect of the way they reported their results, which really doesn't uh, deal with agriculture methods at all. I received, before this article was published, the Stanford study was published uh, in October, I received a press copy that was sent out to reporters so that they could work on a story that would come out at the same time that the study was published. And I I read the paper and I commented to the person who had asked me to comment on it that they were using a way of reporting their data about uh, pesticide residues and contamination with uh, bacteria that it was almost certain to be misinterpreted. And that proved to be true. And unfortunately, the authors themselves are at least partly responsible for this misinterpretation. They used a very unusual way of reporting their results, and I'll try to explain it in the case of pesticide residues. They found that, let's see, about 40% of the conventional foods were contaminated with, I think it was two or more pesticides, but only 7% of the organic foods were contaminated. Now, most of us would say, wow, that's a pretty big difference. Uh, 7% contaminated organic, 40% contaminated conventional foods, that's about a, what, six-fold difference? Mm-hmm. Five-fold difference, as I recall. But the authors reported it as a 33% difference. And the way they got that 33% difference was they they took the 40% conventional contamination rate, subtracted off the 7% uh, organic contamination rate, and said there's a 33% difference. Now, this is this is very misleading. To reporters, this misleading, this misinterpretation that there was only a 33% difference instead of a five or six-fold difference, this this appeared in all of the uh, news stories that I saw, and it even appeared in the the Stanford University press release. Mm -hmm. It was completely confusing, and uh, I've had some further correspondence with the authors about it, and I don't find them being interested at all in correcting this misinterpretation of their study. They seem to prefer to let the world think that they only found a 33% difference in pesticide contamination. Well, it's a real shame, and it's a, it's a true conundrum both for journalists and consumers who are trying to make sense of all of this research. I guess in a nutshell, the question really boils down to, are organically produced foods healthier and safer, I wonder how you'd answer that question. Well, I would say definitely the evidence is yes. This five-fold, six-fold difference in contamination of pesticides, I think that's probably the major reason that most people choose organic foods. Right. 
in addition, they found about a threefold difference in the in meats, chicken and pork, I think it was, in the amount of bacterial contamination. This is something that people probably don't think about so much, but there was there was about a threefold difference between conventional and organic in the in contamination with these antibiotic resistant bacteria. Unfortunately, this this actual threefold difference they reported it in their funny way. It came out to be a thirty percent difference instead of a threefold difference. Mm-hmm. Now regarding nutrients. I've been interested in this question for a long time and looked at many years of studies and a lot of the early ones were not done very well. In general, the nutrient differences between organic and conventional foods are not that great. And so it's difficult to prove. The Stanford study uh, claims to pretty well disprove it completely. But interestingly, an earlier paper out of England using a very simple, similar method of analysis and looking at much the same data arrived at a different conclusion than this, the Stanford people did. And the nutrient differences, probably the biggest nutrient differences are not so much in vitamins and minerals as they are in phytochemicals, these substances that are beneficial but not not essential. And in the case of milk, there are, I think almost everyone has to agree, the data shows considerably higher levels of omega-3 fatty acids and another substance called conjugated linoleic acid, CLA. These are, have been consistently found to be higher in organic milk than in conventional milk. And the differences are not small uh, the way they are for many vitamins and minerals. We're talking 50%, sometimes double or triple uh, in the case of omega-3 fatty acids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, so my answer would be uh, that the differences in general tend to be small and hard to prove for vitamins and minerals larger and more convincing for phytochemicals and the strongest in milk for omega-3 fatty acids. Oh, that's wonderful to know. We just have a minute left, and I want to make sure that you have a chance to leave our listeners with any nuggets of information you've gleaned over the years that you want to make sure people know. Well, the very most important thing that people can do to improve their nutrition actually is not to choose organic foods, but to limit the amount of non-whole foods that have been completely wiped out. We're not talking about small differences. We're talking about foods that have been completely wiped out or at least half wiped out in a broad range of vitamins and minerals. And these foods, these non-whole foods are refined sugars. That's the worst offender. Uh, Fats and oils that have been squeezed out of Agricultural products are almost as empty as sugar. And then we have white flour and white rice where there's an average 70% loss of minerals, a broad range of minerals. These are larger than any of the declines that we're talking about. So that's the most important thing that people can do is to cut down on those non-whole foods 
eat more whole foods. That's great advice, a great send-off message. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Davis, for being my guest. Listeners, we've been speaking with Dr. Don Davis. He is a research associate or former research associate with the Biochemical Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. And I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I especially want to thank you, Dr. Davis, for being my guest. Uh, You're most welcome. Thank you.